Our sermon text for this morning will be from Romans 7. I'm going to skip the paragraph about the married woman being bound to her husband while they're still alive. And we're going to start with, so my brothers and sisters. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to one another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, spring, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do not do what I now if I do what I do not want to do it is no longer I who do it but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work although I want to do good evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law but I see another law at work in me waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, who pours out on all who desire the spirit of grace and of supplication, as we draw nearer to you, banish from us the coldness of heart and wanderings of mind, 
that with steadfast thoughts and kindled affections we may worship you and hear your word in spirit and in truth. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So today is the first Sunday of the new year, according to the reckoning of our present age. But it was not always so. In fact, celebrating the start of the new year on January 1st is actually a relatively recent phenomenon in the English-speaking world. Did you all know that? Yeah, you probably thought this is how it's always been, but no. And so here's your trivia lesson for today. So the calendar, as we would still basically recognize it today, is said to have been originally created by Romulus. Who knows who Romulus was? Non-Star Trek Romulus. Okay, Romulus was the founder of Rome uh, as some seven or 800 years before Christ was born. Back then, though, there were only 10 months, beginning with, anyone know? March. So March used to be the first month of the year. And March, of course, is named after Mars. That's right, Mars, who was the Roman god of war. Then at some point, uh, January and February were added. January was named after? That's right, Janus. Janus Janus is who? He's the... He's a two-faced, he's got two faces, he's got two faces, he's a two-faced god of, of gateways, he's the god of transitions, the god of dualities, and so then the first of January became the beginning of the new year. I know what you're thinking, you just said it was recently that we know. Okay, so bear with me, still. So sooner or later, Christianity took over the Roman world, and by about the sixth century or so, the Christians decided that instead of marking the transition of one year to the next by Janus, by the two faces of Janus, they would instead mark it by the first day of the era of grace. Does anyone know what day that would be? Easter? Close, very close. Okay, so uh, the first day of the era of grace was thought to be the day of Christ's incarnation when the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that by the power of the Holy Spirit, she would conceive and bear the Son of the Most High, our Savior. And back then, you know, all Christians routinely celebrated this event, which was called the Annunciation. Some some churches still celebrate the Annunciation to this day. And the Feast of the Annunciation is on March 25th. So then March 25th became the first day of the new year and would stay that way for a long, long time. Uh, In fact, it wasn't until about a thousand years later, uh, Pope Gregory XIII made a series of of needed reforms to the calendar. In fact, today we still use the Gregorian calendar, uh, and he did this in order to line things up better with how long it actually takes the Earth to go around the sun, or if you're, you know, a geocentric person, the sun to go around the Earth, whatever floats your boat. Uh, And while he was at it, he decided to switch New Year's Day back to January 1st. But that was for the Catholics. In the Protestant, English-speaking world, March 25th would remain the first day of the new year until the middle of the 18th century. So until like 1749 or 50 or something like that, the first day of the new year, if you spoke English, was still March 25th. But since then, we are now back to using the month of the two-faced god Janus for the first month of the new year. And today is the first Sunday of this month, so I think, 
I think this is a good opportunity to consider what does it mean to have two faces? Because as a society, we're obsessed with our own faces, aren't we? we? Love our faces. In fact, if I had to give a name to the age in which we live today, I think I would call it the, the Facebook age, or maybe the selfie age, right? We're in the selfie era. Now, it's true that you know, if you use a mirror, uh, you can take a picture of yourself, of your own face, uh, ever since you know, cameras were, were a thing. And cameras were invented, I don't know, sometime around uh, 1900 or so. We're talking about portable ones, not the big clunky things on the tripod, but like ones that you could actually have <coughs> yourself uh, was invented around 1900 by George Eastman. And in fact, the first known celebrity teen selfie using a camera and a mirror was taken in 1914 by the Grand Duchess Anastasia, uh, the daughter of the last czar of Imperial Russia. Yeah, the famous Anastasia, the one with the cartoon movie thing. And anyway, so these cheap, but it wasn't until like, you know, you, you got like these little bitty cheap, small digital cameras, you know, uh, and that didn't come about until like the late 20th century. And that made, you know, taking a selfie a lot easier because now you didn't have to like waste expensive film to, to, you know, and you wouldn't know how it would turn out until you got the film developed. Now, these little cameras have got like a little video screen on it, so you could take the little shot and see, okay, did that turn out? All right, so we all remember doing that. And, and this technological development also coincided with the invention of, of the internet, right? Uh, which is still to this day, you know, it's this kind of alternate reality that, that overlays our physical one. It's almost like this parallel dimension, and it's great for storing like huge amounts of data which you can access anytime you want with these little bitty handheld computers that have radios built into them, right? Like we all have one now, right? And so at the dawn of the 21st century, uh, eventually somebody figured out that you can take these pictures of yourself, you can combine the, the selfie taking picture technology with the internet technology, and then you can post these things into the internet, and now you can share your selfie uh, to anybody in the world who cares to look at it. I think, it was, and it was, I think it was Australians who first came up with this. Then we had like social media. You know, MySpace, you all remember that? You, and if you go farther back, you remember Friendster? Like Friendster, and then came MySpace, and then... Anyway, all that came into being sometime, you know, in the early 2000s, I think. Uh, and that was about the same time you got the... Phone, the front-facing phone camera, right? And, I think Sony Ericsson was the first uh, company to come up with a phone that could do that. But it probably really wasn't until Apple came up with the iPhone that it really took off. And now it was really easy to take a selfie because you could see yourself, you could line your shot up and, and take it that way. And probably, and then you, know, then you had all these other social media things. You got what? Instagram and Twitter and TikTok and all this stuff. Now you could do video selfies. And this became such a big deal that by 2013, over 30% over of all photographs taken, especially by, by young people, like aged, I don't know, 18 to 24 or something like that, 30% uh, of all pictures taken by these people were selfies. And I think 2013 is when the Oxford English Dictionary called, named the selfie the, the word of the year. But before you know, all this technology, enable all of this in practice, the philosophical foundation of being obsessed with your own face, the selfie era, 
It actually began even, even long before then. And probably you know, sometime after the end of, of the Second World War, you know, 1945, uh, when, you know, for, and if you think about it, like once World War II ended, that was the end of like 16 years of privation from the beginning of the Great Depression to the end of the war. And by then, you know, American society in particular, I think we'd, people were sort of burned out a little bit. Uh, people wanted to put all that food rationing and war, death camps, wanted to put all that behind them. So instead, people wanted things to make life easier, life more pleasant, more fun. Uh, and this kind of created a situation where everyone's hearts were sort of open to a vision of the world that was a lot more upbeat and positive. You had some really popular books back then, uh, like Peace of Mind, The Mature Mind, The Power of Positive Thinking. Maybe people have at least heard of that last one. These books came out in the 1940s and 50s, along with a very sort of a new uh, sort of humanistic psychology or therapy movement led by I think Carl Rogers. And basically, he's the one who originated this idea that the key to happiness was liberating one's inner self through self-love, self-praise, and self-acceptance. And the underlying assumption behind all of these things is that every human being has, you know, at their core, an innately good, true self that should be trusted above all else. You know, so our own desires are therefore, you know, our own desires are they're sort of like the inner prophets of yourself determining what is right. You know you are on the right track when you feel good inside, your personal feelings are the best guide for what is just and true. And it is therefore important to be faithful to your pure inner voice and, and reject anything else in the world that tries to silence it. All you have to do is to be true to yourself and everything will be fine. Right? Everyone knows that, right? From watching TV and movies for the last you know, 40, 50, 60 years. Uh, at every college or high school graduation, right? Be true to yourself. And in this self-oriented philosophy that is the hallmark of sort of the, the, the selfie era, the, the face era, obsession over our own faces, sin, such as it is, it doesn't originate from oneself, from, from you. It's, it's actually more of like an external phenomenon, especially as embedded in the structures of, of a corrupted society. So like racism, inequality, oppression, those are the sources of sin, not, not you. But here's the thing, contrary to the ethos of all of this, we have stuff like Romans 7. Okay, in Romans 7, which I just read earlier, it reminds us that the self is not only not perfect, it's not even one thing, it's divided. It's divided between two natures. You have a sin nature, which is the original nature of all human beings since the fall. And then you have a regenerate nature, which is the will of the faithful in Christ. And so in this way, we are all like Janus, that two-faced god of, of January. You know, we have two faces representing these sort of two different, these dual natures. New believers, when you know, what often become new believers when, you know, whether by, you know, sort of gradual steps or sometimes a spectacular crash of awareness brought by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and when, they, when this happens, you know, these new believers, they realize that they indeed do have this sin nature 
And this makes them in this desperate state of needing the grace of God through Christ's atoning death on the cross in order to have any hope of redemption. And initially, and some of you may just remember this from your own lives when you became Christians, uh, initially there's, there's great joy, right, when you realize all of this. There's great joy and euphoria at this prospect of, of salvation and eternal life and relationship with God as well there should be. But then, as a new believer, uh, you kind of start to realize that you're actually even more of a sinner than you, than you thought you were before you came to faith. And this realization can sometimes be kind of discouraging. I mean, especially if it's kind of unexpected. And then the question arises, inevitably, if, if I'm redeemed, why, why am I still struggling with so much sin in my life? I thought I was saved. Why am I still dealing with this sin awfulness? And the answer lies in this division, this duality between your two faces or your two natures. Everyone is born with the first sin nature inherited from you know, the fall of man through, you know, through Adam and Eve. And remember that this whole fall of man thing occurred when the first human beings decided that they wanted to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that they could decide for themselves what was right and wrong apart from God. We don't need God, we, we got our knowledge of good and evil ourselves. And instead of divine, depending on divine revelation to understand God's will, humans would instead rely on self-revelation to determine what is best for them. And it is a nature that is fundamentally self-centered instead of God-centered. And therefore, it is a disordered nature that makes it essentially impossible for human beings to control their, selfless, their selfish inclinations and carnal appetites that result in what we call sin. Thus, for example, you know, the productive impulse meant to provide shelter, sustenance, and other material items needed for physical survival, it can become greed when it is used just to you know, show off how cool you are. Look how much I've got. Look how much better I am than you. Uh, or, or sexual desire, you know, it's meant to bring us to a state where we bond as men and women, as a husband and wife, to bring forth children. I mean, and when that's disordered, it becomes lust. When, it is ex ex when it's exercised mainly just to satiate your own desires, your own lusts. Now, when a believer is born again, this sin nature is not totally destroyed at once by the process of spiritual birth. But what does happen is that a new nature is then implanted into the soul of the believer, kind of like a seed sown by the word of God. And this new nature is similar to the divine nature and cannot sin because it is born of God. And so then rather than being oriented towards the, the murky, mucky depths of the self, as the old sin, sinful nature is, is pointed out, the, the new godly nature is pointed towards heaven, towards Jesus Christ himself. And so it's important to always remember that this godly nature exists inside everyone who has sworn eternal allegiance to Christ the Lord. Now, it may be really small and dim at times, but once it has been kindled, it's going to be there. It's always going to be there, it can, and it can never be totally extinguished. It is, it is almost like a life force which fundamentally hates sin and repents 
when you stumble into it and it doesn't let you be at peace when it exposes sin in parts of your soul that you may not have even realized existed until then. And this is the part of your nature which yearns to be holy as God is holy and actually delights in the law of God. And it finds no rest and no comfort except in God from whom it came. Therefore, this old nature and this new nature, they're diametrically opposed to each other, kind of in a state of war, that the new nature, continually assisted by divine strength, is guaranteed to win, eventually. But until then, a certain amount of conflict is going to be inevitable. That is not to say that this conflict is gonna be, you know, sort of at the same high intensity all the time. Um, instead, I think, you know, most, most of us go through sort of this uh, three-part cycle of, of joy, struggle, and then peace, right? The joy is there when, when you rejoice that God loves you. You're like, yeah, God loves me. Jesus loves me. He's redeemed me, and he promised me so many wonderful things in the world to come, and it's just, I just love it. That's the, that's the joy part. Then, then comes the struggle part, right? The struggle of sanctification when your new godly nature goes to work, exposing you know, the, the horrible sin in your life, and it starts crushing it, which of course, it's gonna be an unpleasant, painful, and sometimes pretty miserable experience. But then after that, you experience this kind of peace that settles over you as you contemplate the amazing, wonderful changes that God has wrought in your life at the end of the struggle. But then it begins all over again, right? At varying levels and at varying times when once again, after some period of seeming rest, you'll have to kind of, it's almost like you have to get up again, right? Throw off that blanket, get out of bed and go do some more fighting, do some more work. And this fighting is inevitable because again, like, you know, this, this, the light of your new life in Christ, as it brightens, it's gonna expose even more of the impurities within you. To give an example, uh, in the army, as privates, uh, we, we used flashlights to look for, uh, you know, like dust, dirt, and other nasty things that were supposed to be cleaned up in our, in our barracks prior to an inspection. The problem is that, you know, during the time I was in, flashlight technology advanced by leaps and bounds. You know, when I first joined the army, we got these, you know, these, this big, heavy, clunky, angle-headed flashlight. I think it was the same flashlight that was issued since the Vietnam War. And unless you had super fresh batteries, I mean, this thing put out about as much light as like a jar of fireflies. I mean, it was, it was terrible. And then one day, uh, we were issued a much smaller and, and lighter weight, but it was ridiculously brighter flashlight. Compared to the old flashlight, I mean, it was like the difference between like, you know, the sun and the moon, it was so much brighter. And now, and at first this was great, right? We're like, yes, super bright, lightweight flashlight. This is awesome. We can now identify targets uh, a lot more clearly at night, so we're less likely to shoot each other, right? So that's a good thing. But there was a downside. Because overnight, floors that we used to think were like, yeah, that's pretty clean, all of a sudden with a super bright flashlight, oh, they were suddenly filthy beyond horrors, you know, under this super bright new light. And then we had to clean even more. And this is an important thing to keep in mind when we read of Paul's struggles in Romans 7 here. You know, sometimes I think people read what he wrote and they're kind of mystified and maybe a little kind of freaked out by the prospect that of, man, if a guy like Paul, this like amazing towering saint, struggled so much with sin, then how, how am I gonna handle it? 
I'm just a regular person. How can I ever overcome sin myself? But remember, the, the reason that Paul struggled so intensely isn't because he was such a horrible sinner, it's because he was such a saint. Not because he thought himself you know, so hopelessly mired in sin or doomed to fall into temptation, but because he lived this life that was so sensitive to holiness and because he was so powerfully motivated to glorify God in all things, that's why his struggle felt so intense. Because he would see even the tiniest blot of sin and it looked all the more out of place against the backdrop of a mostly clean and getting cleaner soul. And it troubled him greatly. You know, like if, if any of you have ever worn like a pure, bright, all-white dress or an all-white uniform, I mean, you know that even the tiniest little spot or stain is going to seem like this catastrophe. That's all you're going to see. You know, spaghetti and meatballs is death. You know, you, you may end up even avoiding even water. You don't even want to get water droplets on you. You know, so, th so this fighting between your two natures, between your sin nature and your godly nature, that's not only inevitable, it's actually a good sign. It's a good sign in your spiritual life. It's a sign that you still have life in you. You still have light in you. People who are horribly steeped in sin, they don't know of any conflict like that. They don't struggle with sin because they've embraced it. They sin and they love it. And the more they sin, the more numb they become to sin. And sin, because you know, here's the thing, sin and evil, I mean, they're desensitizing agents over time. But where there is spiritual conflict, where there is spiritual struggle, that means the grace of God is also present. Because if you sin and you hate that sin and you dread grieving God because of your sin, then while I and all of your brothers and sisters in Christ sympathize with your sorrow, I mean, really, we should also be encouraging each other and you know, actually exchanging high fives and saying like, yes, we are marked with struggle like Paul was marked in the struggle with sin because we're children of God. You can't forget that these are two opposing natures within you and that means lifetime of conflict within you. And finally, this lifelong struggle should make you look to Christ for victory. I mean, like a new believer, you know, return as often as you need to to the foot of the cross by remembering him, remembering his sacrifice, by confessing your sins in prayer. That is the way not only to conquer sin, but to overcome any looming feelings of despair. And remember that Jesus came into our world and suffered and died so that you would never face sin or death alone. It is Christ who gave you the water of life when you thirsted, the bread from heaven when you were hungry, who girds you in his armor and equips you with a shield of faith and the sword of the spirit that it is his word to fight evil. The greater the struggle between your two natures, your two faces, the more you will probably find out how much more you are in need of Christ's strength. But then you will also learn how much more he can lead you through any adversity, just as a ship being tossed and driven through a horrible storm reveals the hand of a great captain much more than a ship that's just cruising in calm waters. So expect conflict as Paul experienced it in Romans 7. And do not be surprised or discouraged when it comes, but confidently expect final victory and embrace it. For surely as God has called you to fight the good fight in the spiritual warfare, he will carry you through it. 
And if it's been a while since you've had any conflict in your life, within your soul, I hope you'll get back into the fight soon. May God not let you rest quietly and complacently all the time with sin any longer, but may he reawaken you and move you to turn back to Christ. Let us pray. Loving God, we confess that we have sinned. Even though we want to do what is right, we do not always succeed. Not only do we sometimes fail to do what is right, but at times we consciously choose to think and act in ways we know are wrong. We are truly sorry and ask for your forgiveness. But through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been set free from the power of sin. So even though we must struggle and fight the sin in our lives, let us also be at peace knowing that all our sins are forgiven and ultimate victory will be ours. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.